0: It's time for our third set of core content in the People in Business module. For this session, we're looking at people and power and politics. So we want to understand something about how power and politics functions within organizations. And in order to do that, we'll be looking at some historical or earlier voices on power. We'll look at sources of power for individuals according to a specific model. We'll look at potential reactions that people have to the use of power in organizations, to those individual sources of power. We'll look at positive and negative aspects of power and we'll look at managing organizational politics, political skills and empowerment, as well as take a look at the idea of organizational climate. First of all, let's start with coming to understand a little bit about the idea of power. Sometimes, if you might ask people, how would you define power or what do you think power is? Is it positive or negative? You might get different answers, but let's start with the idea that power is not necessarily positive or negative. It is a neutral thing and it does not exist in isolation. In order for it to exist, there must be some possibility or some context for power In which it can be exercised. And so that means that power, in and of itself, is situational. Essentially, there are few people who have no power whatsoever, and comparative power is often more important than absolute power. So we can look at an academic definition of power, as provided by Tani, in Our textbook from Rowlandson. They define the concept of power as follows. The capacity of an individual or group to modify the conduct of other individuals or groups in a manner which they desire but without having to modify their own conduct in a manner that they do not desire. This is an interesting definition of power. Power is stated here as an ability to influence others but it also has an implication that the person influencing the, the power has some sort of control over whether they're trying to get other people to do what they want and not have to change anything that they have to do themselves. else can we say about power? There are some factors that can give rise to political behavior within organizations. So power has something to do with human behavior and it's also closely related to the idea of politics. So if we start by defining the concept of politics, we can see that politics is understood as activities undertaken within an organization to acquire and to use power and other resources in order to obtain one's preferred outcomes in a situation where there is uncertainty or inconsensus about choices. So this is a definition that we get from a scholar named Pfeffer, also found in the textbook by Rawlinson. So, politics generally refers to the use of power and authority to influence organizational outcomes. You'll see that this definition of politics has some similarities with the definition of power, in that the person who is exercising the power or who is engaging in the politics is trying to obtain their own preferred outcomes by influencing other people's behavior and not necessarily having to modify their own behavior. So some of these factors then that give rise to this kind of political power are personal ambitions or the situation or context of resources being scarce. Novel technologies can give rise to political behavior. Non-programmed decisions, that is, decisions that require some discretionary uh, consideration. Organizational change can give rise to political power. Role ambiguity, when there is some sense of uncertainty in the situation. Unclear criteria for evaluating performance. Again, we see that there is uncertainty or a lack of clarity or a lack of senses about what criteria should be used, or a context of low trust can also be a factor that causes political behavior to increase. So what is the relationship between power and politics based on these ideas? Power and organizational politics, as we've seen, are closely related. and. Uh, power and organizational politics in the contemporary environment often are more suitable and are exercised in relationships that are more egalitarian. So what does that mean? Well, this means uh, involving the use of shared power in that relationship. Let's move on to look at power and politics in a cultural context. Power distance and uncertainty avoidance are two dimensions that have been extracted from Hofstede's model of intercultural dimensions or of cultural dimensions. These are two of five cultural dimensions that Hofstede delineated through his research. Power distance is the extent to which power, uh, power distance is the extent to which people recognize differences in the amount of power people have within society or within a hierarchy. So Power distance is related to hierarchical relationships, much like what we see in the structures of organizations. And a high power distance would mean that there is a large discrepancy between those who have a lot of power and those who have very little power. And there is also a lot of value and uh, respect spent on maintaining that power distance and those hierarchies. So large power distance means that power is in the hands of only a few people and that the society or the context that we are engaging in is inherently unequal. Supportinates depend on those further up in the hierarchy and the latter's superior power is accepted. So there is a clear demarcation within these types of contexts that everybody knows their place and that there are wide inequalities, that these wide inequalities exist for a reason and are therefore considered normal and acceptable, even desirable. So we see a high degree of dependence of subordinates on those higher up in the chain of command. In contexts which have large power distance, These types of organizations will be highly centralized and hierarchical. In an organization, however, with small power distance, you'll find that they are more decentralized and have flatter structures and flatter hierarchies. So, in a context of small power distance, you'll have less demarcation of who has power, who has less power. There are more blurred boundaries and respect within these kinds of organizations is not earned through ability, wait, is earned through ability, not earned through position. The structures within these types of contexts with small power distance will be less clear and the boundaries will be uh, blurred as well in terms of structure. Examples of countries who you could say, have this kind of a context of low power distance or small power distance are generally Northern European countries and a number of Anglo-Saxon countries. Now we want to look at the idea of uncertainty avoidance. Uncertainty avoidance is also a cultural dimension that was... That was delineated by Hofstede in his theory of of culture and uncertainty avoidance has to do with the degree in which folks in a society or in a specific context are happy with taking risks or are capable of dealing with high levels of ambiguity. And so it's the level of tolerance of uncertainty and ambiguity in a given situation or throughout a culture. For a situation that is within a context of high uncertainty avoidance, you'll see that highly structured situations are more desirable and that these types of contexts or organizations will have plenty of rules and regulations to be followed. There is little tolerance of people demonstrating deviant behavior in a context of high uncertainty avoidance. High uncertainty avoidance, when there is differing behavior or deviant behavior, or people aren't adhering to the rules or the expectations, this can cause high levels of anxiety and emotion in that context. So a few examples of countries that need to avoid uncertainty are, for example, Korea, Japan, and some Mediterranean countries. Now, low uncertainty avoidance is characterized, for example, in organizational structures similarly to those with low power distance. Flatter structures, less hierarchy, less need for strong dependency on on leadership or leader figures, and some examples of countries with little need to avoid uncertainty are some Northern European countries and even some Asian countries. Next, we want to look a bit more at the nature of power. And here we're looking to some historical voices like Machiavelli. Much of our understanding about the nature of power in politics is derived to a greater or lesser extent from the early literature on governmental politics and political rulers. We take the example of Machiavelli. One of the key principles in Machiavelli's work is it's better to be loved rather than feared or feared rather than loved it might perhaps be answered that we should wish to be both. But since love and fear can hardly exist together, if we must choose between them, it is far safer to be feared than to be loved. So going off of this quote, or this key principle about fear and love, In Machiavelli's view, the strength of a leader's power is measured by the degree in which he or she is independent of others and maintains domination. We still talk of some people who use power in organizations as being Machiavellian, meaning that they are power hungry and self-serving. Machiavelli's view of power hinges on the assumption that people are typically ungrateful, fickle, and deceitful. Assumptions that most students of organizational behavior and modern management would today reject. Yet Machiavelli might have some useful lessons for us, particularly the idea that leaders often need power to do their jobs. He pointed out that during his day, as well as now, Powerless leaders could do little to ensure the protection and well-being of the people for whom they were responsible. Power is necessary for leaders and managers. Without power, they cannot get anything done. Next, we turn to another early voice on power and politics. We're looking now at Max Weber. Max Weber was a famous German sociologist who is credited with doing some of the earliest work on organizational behavior in terms of studying organizational structures and leadership. Weber was particularly concerned about the nature of power and the question of why people obey others or are willing to be controlled by them. He proposed three types of power domination, charismatic, traditional, and legal-rational. Charismatic is a type of domination or way of using power and influence where power and control are derived from the personal magnetism of the person wielding the power. You remember this concept maybe from other discussions around charisma and leadership and charismatic leadership. Traditional is where power is granted through family lineage or from one generation to the next. Legal rational, is a type of power where laws and constitutional processes create legitimate authority. Weber argued that these, that the last of these, the legal rational or the bureaucratic form of authority was superior to other forms of power because in bureaucracies, authority was based on the position a person held and their power was controlled by rules, by hierarchy and by reporting relationships. Despite his ambivalence, he still thought that power based on position in the organization was better than alternatives such as charisma or inheritance. When people in particular positions use power, it may be seen as good and necessary. When others exercise power, it may be viewed as unfair and inappropriate. So that'll be the end of the first part of this session of core content on people, power, and politics. Now we'll move on to some more contemporary thoughts on power and politics and organizations. So we're looking at some changing ideas on power. A key idea that has guided how we understand power in organizations is the recognition that power is latent. The word latent means that something is present but may not necessarily be active or it may be hidden. In the case of power, this means that it is perceived, that the perceived potential to influence rather than the actual act of influencing. When used, it becomes visible as authority or persuasion or force or even coercion. Because power has this characteristic of being latent from a practical point of view, How much power you actually have depends in a large measure on how much power people think you have. Again, the idea is that power is a latent potential or capacity to influence or control. It is not just the act of coercing or influencing someone. So moving on from that idea, we now turn to questioning power and authority. The assumption that power and authority are an inherent right of management has remained largely unchanged since the 1950s. The human relations movement during the 1960s and 70s challenged the idea that the job of management was to manipulate workers for the benefit of organizations. In the 1960s, researchers were urging us to change our conceptions about management and the nature of people. Instead of being inherently lazy, people might exhibit these behaviors because of outmoded organizational forms and because of authority relations that were also outmoded. So we can see that in the early stages of more contemporary thought on management and power and politics, uh, the human relations movement during the 1960s and 70s challenged these ideas. Um, Instead, it was felt that organizations instead of manipulating workers to benefit them, should be meeting both individual and collective needs of the organization. So during the early stages of the organizational development movement, the nature and desirability of traditional hierarchical authority relationships came under particularly heavy fire. In the 1950s and 60s, Although ownership became increasingly separated from organizational management, the assumption that power and authority are an inherent right of management still remained largely unchanged. In the 60s, we saw instead of these ideas, some changes going on. Now we see characteristics of power and authority uh, a bit differently power will become more equalized and people will behave in a positive and productive way, instead of seeing organizations as economically rational in their decision-making process. The idea that organizations were also political entities and that the people in them act politically became more accepted. Some argue that organizations always seek to reduce uncertainty and dependency Because power is the opposite of dependency, organizations will try to minimize their dependency on external entities and people by maintaining alternatives, seeking prestige, engaging in cooperative strategies, contracting or co-opting those who impose threats. Individuals behave in much the same way as organizations by seeking to minimize dependence, for example, by forming coalitions and attempting to acquire power. Accordingly, the traditional idea that one person could hold absolute authority has ceased to make a lot of sense. In this view, the power of individuals was not derived, nor should it be derived solely in their positions. Now in a global context, it becomes increasingly important to recognize that people of different cultures may view power and authority differently. These cultural differences become very important, of course, in multinational corporations. In such cases, there is often conflict over what is considered to be legitimate behaviors, and developing a common view will be a matter of negotiation. When the political and other norms of the headquarters of a, and the host country are at, at odds, it's not necessary for the headquarters to completely adopt the norms of the host culture. Some adjustments will invariably need to occur. Now we want to move on to the French and Raven model of power bases, sources of power in individuals. French and Raven, in their research, came up with a model of power that shows five different ways uh, that power can be expressed or utilized in different ways of influencing people through power. First of all, we have legitimate power. Legitimate power is obviously associated with the idea of legitimacy. And as we saw earlier, when we look at power, politics, and authority, legitimacy is often attached to things like status or a role, um, a role or the authority that someone has within an organization. So, legitimate power arises from people's values and beliefs that someone has the right to exert power and influence over them and that they have the obligation to comply. As said before, in organizations this type of power is derived from people's positions or job titles. Although most organizations use position titles to designate levels of authority, some organizations rely on position power much more so than others do. Not all people with the title of director have the same amount of power, even within the same organization. Even the title of manager may not mean the same thing in different organizations. Nonetheless, the idea of legitimate power as being attached to status or roles or structures and the right to exercise power is important. Reward power is a type of power that is attached to something you would receive for doing what the person in power wants you to do. So this arises from our ability to reward other people for behaving in the ways that we want them to. This seems very closely related to the concept of power in our original definition, influencing people to do something we want them to do. Reward power involves influencing others by providing positive outcomes for those people we're attempting to influence and preventing negative outcomes for them. So reward power is similar to positive reinforcement. Effective managers can use reward power to highlight good work and to reinforce behavior that advances organizational values and organizational goals. If used appropriately, this can help employees to learn and grow and can help organizations to obtain their objectives. But you don't have to be a manager or a person in a position of authority in order to use reward power. The use of reward power typically engenders cooperation and minimizes resistance because those who are being influenced see some kind of benefit in it for themselves. The next one is called coercive power. Now, coercion as you can see is a way of using force or attempting to influence people by way of force when i think of coercive power i think of maybe somebody really holding a gun to your head coercive power is based on our ability to apply sanctions or punishments for the failure of others to do what is wanted of them so in this case the person influencing the power has the ability to incur some kind of negative outcome for the people they're attempting to influence. The using, uh, using coercive power involves exerting influence through punishment or the threat of punishments, particularly if punishments are dispensed without also offering rewards, negative consequences can result. But nonetheless, Coercive power does have its place in organizations. The use of coercive power by itself as a sole means of influencing others, however, is not recommended. Uh, Extensive use of coercive power can can cause uh, disintegration of trust in relationships. Expert power. This is a type of influence that people can enact drawing on their special expertise. And this expertise is needed and valued in the organization and therefore people with that expertise can exercise expert power. That means people will do what you want them to do because they trust your knowledge, they trust your experience, they trust your expertise. So French and Raven, defined this as power based in our knowledge and expertise. It's also related to having information uh, that you may have and others need. If you know or understand something important that other people in the organization do not, then this gives you expert power. Becoming knowledgeable in a manner that helps your organization function better and to serve customers more effectively can make you more powerful in this sense. So this power base, although you may agree or disagree with this, your ability to use and acquire influence is not wholly dependent on your successful performance of your assigned duties. The last power base, And a type of power for individuals is called referent power. Referent power depends on the degree to which others desire to have a relationship with the person wielding that power or a desire to identify with that person. So referent power has to do with the way people refer to us as in identify with us. Referent power is based on psychological identification between people. In practical terms, we gain influence through referent power by being liked, admired, and respected. So you might see a bit of a connection between referent power and, the word we saw before, charisma, charismatic authority. For that reason, the best way to influence people is by being genuinely likable, admirable, and respectable. Now, one example I use for referent power is the way that marketing companies will use celebrities to try to influence our purchasing power. So if uh, we happen to be football fans and we see uh, a great football star wearing a fancy watch then that might increase our desire to buy that fancy watch because we refer to David Beckham when we think of that watch we think oh by having the same watch as David Beckham I can identify with him and be as cool as him so those are the five power bases according to French and Raven and what we want to look at next is how people respond to the five power bases. So you'll see in this little chart, the sources of power on the one side, coercion, reward, legitimacy, expertise, and referent power. And the other side shows how some of the potential reactions to that power may emerge. And you'll see it's organized um, according to a level of resistance, uh, compliance, and commitment. So I'll talk you through this a little bit more. Now, when we try to coerce someone, oftentimes their first reaction to that is resistance. You're trying to force me to do something. Well, why should I do what you want me to do? Okay, so resistance is the first reaction. However, coercion can be so powerful that you'll do anything and everything to avoid the negative consequences. Reward power uh, is a way of saying, well, if you do this for me, then I'll give you something that you want. Now, there may be a little bit of resistance there as well because you might have some kind of a conflict about what that person's asking you to do and then you would be outweighing the the positive outcome that that person is offering you before you comply. With legitimate power, we accept their power and authority and therefore generally also accept the idea that we should comply and will comply. Although there may also be an element of resistance against that legitimate power. Now expertise power is one that doesn't necessarily um, make resistance really salient in people because we know we're missing something, we need that person's expertise and knowledge and therefore we're happy to comply with what they tell us to do and we're more readily uh, ready to commit to their suggestions. And with referent power, we are more than happy to commit to what that person is asking us to do because of that emotional attachment, that psychological attachment to the referent power wielder. So that's a little bit about the power bases, individual bases of power according to French and Raven, and some more contemporary ideas about power. That'll be the end of our second part, in our core content on power and politics. Now we're going to continue looking at power and some more contemporary thoughts on power, uh, positive and negative, and power equalizing. So in contemporary settings most people do not unquestioningly accept power or accept the power of their superiors because people have different reactions to power based on what source of power is used. If a manager relied primarily on coercion as a way of influencing others as we saw previously in the power bases chances are his employees will resist either openly or passively. Politics then involves efforts to both gain power and limit or balance the power of others. So equalizing or balancing power has something to do with uh, working out who has more power, who has less power and trying to uh, alleviate that. So people with less power use four different ways to equalize or balance power in a relationship. They either decrease their needs or demands, decide that they need less and so they become less dependent on those with power. They increase their alternative sources of getting what they want, thereby gaining more independence as well. They can increase other people's needs or demands for us, for themselves, thereby making those others more dependent on the person seeking to equalize or balance the power. Or you can decrease others' alternative sources of power, again, making them more dependent on us, so to speak. So increasing power According to Emerson, in order to increase power, people can become less dependent, uh, seek other sources, other alternative sources to get their needs taken care of. These power, power balancing operations then either decrease dependence in the first two cases or increase the dependence of other people in the second two cases we saw. We can decrease our dependence on the organization, but decreasing our dependence on the organization can be less desirable for an organization as it may reduce people's engagement with the organization. On the other hand, increasing the dependence of other people while not decreasing our dependence on the organization can also result in increasing our involvement in the organization and at the same time can make us more valuable to the organization. It's important to remember three things. First, relationships in organizations are becoming more egalitarian, with positive consequences for individuals and the organizations themselves. Second, gaining expertise and knowledge that are critical to organizational success is not only helpful to you as an individual, but also can help the organization to better accomplish its mission. Third, as a manager, it's important for you to recognize that although you might have organizational authority and other sources of power at your disposal, your employees also have a number of sources of power and it would be good to be aware of them and understand how those can also be enacted. There are also some structural aspects of power. For example, uh, power and powerlessness. There is a degree of power that goes along with one's position in the organizational structure. Once this structure is established, it resists change because it is in the interest of those in power to keep the structure in place that gave them that power. And this can cause a number of people within an organization to either be powerless or to feel powerless. Now, Rosabeth Moth Cantor in 1977 suggested that powerlessness and structural characteristics of organization that perpetuate this kind of powerlessness can result in counterproductive behavior Uh, or deviant behavior in organizations. Deviant behavior that also is counterproductive and can be damaging to the mission of the organization. Structural determinants such as opportunity, mobility, perceived political power, dependency, influence in garnering resources and rewards for subordinates and numerical representation are critical to understanding the influence of power in organizational behavior. So a couple of things to keep in mind about power and structures of organization is that relationship of those uh, having power and those having little power and what influence that can have on the organization's ability to achieve its mission. So let's now look at a few benefits and disadvantages of power or positive and negative aspects of power. Some of the positive aspects of power are that being having some power at all is essential for survival. It's essential for the survival of individuals as well as for organizations. It is essential to conflict resolution and critical to leadership. As we saw before, that leaders cannot accomplish what they need to do without having some kind of power. Power can also be critical for gaining buy-in from others. And it is also necessary for learning in an organization. Some of the negative aspects of power are that people who have lots of power can become self-serving and it has the potential for a destructive outcome, especially when too much coercive power is being used. Power can be subject to abuse and can decrease engagement of others within the organization as well as their involvement. So what we want to look at further on negative and positive aspects of power Let's look at the positive aspects in a bit more depth. Power is not only necessary for positive organizational functioning, but it's also vital and critical source for ensuring organizational survival. Although political power in organizations is often considered unfair or unjust, and generally an undesirable phenomenon, we still see that there is an inherent need for some kind of power to uh, be used. Power and politics can help organizations to adapt and interact with their environments appropriately. For example, political processes are essential to resolving conflicts and also essential to organizational effectiveness. From this perspective, power is not only necessary for positive organizational functioning, but also vital and critical in ensuring the organization's survival. And power can be seen as a positive force because those organizational subunits who are most able to cope with the organization's critical problems and uncertainties will acquire power. And in that way, this can help the organizations interact and respond to their environments. Power is a necessary and healthy aspect of organizational functioning because it is a critical component of leadership. In a strategy contingency theory of power, the reason that subunits or persons who deal with critical problems acquire power is because these subunits or persons play a critical role in organizational success. Power in this view helps to ensure that organizations will protect the survival of their most critical components and select executives or leaders best able to deal with these environmental contingencies. And so as a critical component of leadership, we can see that without power, we are forced to rely solely on hierarchical authority, an approach that is often fraught with difficulties. Power and organizational politics are necessary components for organizational learning because intuiting what happens when individuals develop new ideas and interpreting occurs when these ideas are communicated and explained to others and the process of organizational learning. Integrating involves translating the new ideas into coordinated actions. In the last phase, institutionalizing refers to the incorporation of new ideas and insights into organizational practice. That's the last phase of organizational learning. The types of power and tactics used will vary based on the phase of organizational learning. So intuition in organizational learning is linked with discipline, interpretation is linked with influence, integration with force, and institutionalization with domination. The politics of institutionalization most often involves those, uh, the use of systemic power, such as changing procedures or rules to overcome resistance. So those are a few thoughts on the positive and negative aspects of power and how it relates to processes in the organization such as leadership or such as conflict resolution and organizational learning. Now we can continue looking at some ideas around positive and negative aspects of power as we continue here. we'll look at negative aspects of power. In contrast to these positive views on the role of power in organizations, others urge caution in advocating power and politics in organizations. This approach or this uh, view, this perspective of power, has the assumption that power and politics in organizations are by nature self-serving processes. Power can be abused in organizations and that hierarchical interpersonal abuse of power is a danger to both the individuals hurt and by it the organization itself. So organizational politics is both an individual phenomenon and a group phenomenon that is undertaken to influence others in the direction of the actors, groups, goals. We also need to remember that power can be abused in organizations and that the hierarchical interpersonal abuse of power is a danger to both the individuals who are hurt by it and to the organization itself. So power can be used in a manner that negatively affects other's sense of dignity and self-respect in both style and substance. Such abusive power interferes with employee's job performance. It can interfere with goal attainments and can block deserved rewards. Members of organizations may invest a significant amount of time in trying to influence decisions in which they have some personal stakes. So organizations should employ strategies to discourage organizational members from engaging in such activities by limiting access to decision makers altering the decision criteria to favor good performers, and offering financial incentives to discourage political activity. Finally, as noted earlier, the perception of workplace politics has been shown to have negative consequences for employees, including decreases in job involvement, commitment, and satisfaction, as well as increases in stress, turnover, absenteeism, and perceived inequity, all negative outcomes for organizations that would definitely be, uh, should be, and would be desirable to avoid. So that's the end of this third segment for our Unit 3 in People and Business on People and Politics Now we'll turn to managing organizational politics. First, we'll define the idea of managing organizational politics a little bit. By seeking clarification of goals or by developing a shared sense of direction and purpose through dialogue and interaction, some of the negative consequences of power in politics can be moderated. When goals are unclear and conflicting, it is much easier for individuals to claim and convince others that their agenda is the right one for the organization. The challenge in managing politics, of course, is to choose strategies and tactics that are both legitimate and effective in a given circumstance. So let's have a look at managing organizational politics in terms of this map called the political arena. You can see in this map that is labeled the political arena that there are different ways of using political tactics. And these all are categorized in different ways. And you'll see this map shows you some of the directionality of influence being used and the tactics being employed. So you have lateral tactics that are uh, horizontal, and you have vertical tactics uh, which are then upwards and downwards directionality of influence so political tactics some of the ways that you can use political tactics are controlling and dominating the flow of information using outside experts or controlling agendas you can also use image building or image management as a political tactic. Coalition building is another political tactic that can be employed in organizations. Also gaining control over decision parameters is a type of political tactic that can be employed in organizations. So as you look at this map, you'll see how we can define some of the tactics that are used by people who are higher up in the hierarchy using downward controlling tactics to influence uh, subordinates. You might see also some forms of upward influence where people on the front line find ways to use political tactics to influence those higher up in the chain. You also see how lateral tactics can be used across and instead of up and down. Forming alliances and coalitions are uh, examples of these horizontal tactics. Building a power base by gaining more people who are advocating for your agenda. So we want to continue looking at managing organizational politics and consider the idea of political skills. Political skill can be defined as the ability to effectively understand others at work and to use such knowledge to influence others to act in a way that enhances one's personal and or the organizational goals. Having political skills, particularly skills like networking skills, can be very important to professional success. Political skills have been shown to be associated with getting more promotions, with higher perceived career success and perceived organizational mobility. While we may think of someone having well-developed political skill in a negative light, positive organizational scholars highlight the constructive and useful skills involved in successfully navigating organizational politics. While this may be a little simplistic, politically skilled people have well-developed social skills and the ability to adjust their behavior in different situations and act in ways that other people perceive to be sincere and trustworthy. You may have heard of the term uh, high monitoring, uh, being able to monitor your behavior and adjust according to the situation. Part of being socially savvy is recognizing that how you present yourself to others, or uh, impression management, can be an important part of influencing people. There are at least four additional dimensions of political skill. They include social astuteness, interpersonal influence, networking ability, apparent or perceived sincerity, and these four additional dimensions of political skill were outlined by Perewe et al. in 2007. There is another aspect of political skill that we have yet to touch on, and that is emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence can be seen as a way to personally gain perspective on and manage the emotional effects of organizational politics. It can also be considered a political skill in and of itself. Interpersonal influence requires the ability to read and respond to changing situations and also communicating this ability to others as sincere and genuine, which then should result in trust. Political skills also positively relate to job performance and leadership effectiveness. They can serve as an antidote to stress and enhance career success and reputation of an individual. So you see, individual political skill is an important part of understanding organizational behavior and of engaging with others in an organization. Now we want to look at the idea of empowerment in the context of managing organizational po- organizational politics. So we would like to start by understanding empowerment. Although empowerment as a word, as a term, has been widely used, there is some confusion and lack of clarity regarding exactly what empowerment means. The idea of empowerment is often oversimplified and treated primarily as a management technique. So let's just look at our definition of uh, empowerment that we have here. Empowerment is more than delegation and distinguishes between two existing views on power that can be divided into two categories. First of all, relational constructs, that is where power is a function of the relative dependence or interdependence of the actors. And secondly, motivational constructs, which are found primarily in the psychology literature and based in the idea that power and control are used as motivational and or expectancy belief states that are internal to the individuals. So empowerment has something to do with relationships and with motivation. And it's not just about delegating tasks to subordinates. There's much more involved in the idea of empowerment. Existing views on power that are divided into these relational constructs and motivational constructs um, are just one aspect of this idea of empowerment in the relational constructs the empowerment process becomes one of delegation or of sharing power now some additional existing views on power as we continue looking at motivational constructs it By contrast with motivational constructs, empowerment is an enabling process aimed at creating conditions that increase motivation and the development of feeling and personal efficacy. So what we're starting to see here is this differentiation between empowerment as simply delegation and sharing power with people lower down in the chain of command And empowerment as an enabling process that is meant to create situations where people will feel more motivated and will uh, feel more self-efficacy and self-actualization through that trust relationship that is created by the process of empowerment. So... In this motivational construct, we're creating conditions that foster empowerment. This requires us to consider our assumptions about power in organizations and the behavioral consequences of these assumptions. If power is perceived as a fixed sum or as a zero sum game, then managers will believe that when powers gain, uh, sorry, when employees gain power, they do so at the expense of the manager's power, So basically the idea is is if I'm sharing power or giving power to somebody, I'm losing power or my power is then reduced and that's the zero-sum game or the fixed-sum idea of power. In more empowering environments, power is viewed as expandable, that the more power you share, the more power you create. There are a number of things we can do to foster people's willingness to empower themselves. On some some level, however, uh, power empowerment is up to each individual. Although empowerment can be encouraged by organizational conditions, it's primarily achieved through the decisions of an individual to change their self-image and belief systems. Empowerment is not something uh, granted from the outside, but rather something we give ourselves. Traditionally, organizations have fostered a bureaucratic management mentality that emphasizes caution, compliance, even patriarchal supervisory styles, and negative self- and, sorry, narrow self-interest. A more desirable management style, which has been called an entrepreneurial style, can be fostered through the use of political processes in organizations. From this perspective, empowerment is grounded in enlightened self-interest based on service and contribution to the organization. In modeling self-empowerment, managers adopt the belief that they are their own authority rather than looking to their superiors engage in and encourage self-expression in others and make personal commitments to achieving results. To make this empowerment and enlightened self-interest possible, organizations reflect and express values about work, achievement and community that organizational members can affirm. So that's the last part of our look at managing organizational politics and empowerment. In the next segment we'll look at organizational climate. In this final segment on unit three people in business people power and politics, we're looking at organizational climate. So we'll start with a definition and some outcomes related to organizational climate. A definition of organizational climate can be understood as follows. A characteristic ethos or atmosphere within an organization at a given point in time which is reflected in the way its members perceive, experience, and re- react to the organizational context. So as you can see from this definition, organizational climate, if you think of the word climate like we have uh, on Earth. We have a, a specific kind of climate back where I come from in Iowa, we have a continental climate, which means it's really cold in the winter, really hot and humid in the summer, and we have a lovely spring and autumn in between. Now, the climate here in Great Britain is slightly different from that. Although we have all four seasons, uh, it's a milder sort of climate and doesn't necessarily have all the harsh extremes that we might have in the Midwest. So you can understand organizational climate to be these differences in the the climate which has to do with the way people interact with each other within the organization it's this ethos or this atmosphere of how people interact with each other so organizational climate in some ways is also related to organizational culture but we'll look a little bit more closely at what organizational climate means specifically So considerations of climate important in a power and politics context because of various work-related attitudes and behaviors. So you see the climate is, is characterized by the attitudes and behaviors of the people within the organization and power and politics are an important part of that climate. Some of the attitudes and behaviors that Uh, can be observed that are related to this climate are, for example, people's commitment to the organization, their motivation, their job satisfaction, and their organizational citizenship. Organizational citizenship uh, has to do, if you think of the idea of uh, being a good citizen in society, what sorts of things does that mean? Generally, it means you follow the rules, you do what's expected of you. But in organizational citizenship, what it means is that you actually are engaging in behaviors that go above and beyond what is expected within your normal role. But you're also engaging with people in a way that is generally positive and supporting the expectations and the rules and the ways of doing things in the organization. So it may be important, uh, organizational climate may also be important in regard to organizational performance and hence there is an interest in understanding how we can measure and manage organizational climate. Now there are some relevant factors that can impact on organizational climate and they include things such as external factors, uh, the market. Uh, competitive aspects. For example, internal factors can also influence the organizational climate. For example, the size and the structure of the organization or the actual context of the jobs, the individual employees, different personalities, the goals and the needs can also inf- affect organizational climate. Individuals. Uh, plural right lots of individuals own characteristics will affect their perceptions and assessment of the climate people might be disappointed and and they might uh, leave the organization or they might stay uh, or they might reduce their expectations or reduce their ambitions in order to adjust to the climate so Let's think a little bit more about organizational climate and managing the organizational climate and its outcomes. At an individual level, people have their own personalities, needs, abilities and goals. And the organization needs to satisfy such needs um, and help them achieve these cherished goals. But how easy is this really in practice? Individuals will perceive and judge the organization on how well it satisfies their needs and desires. But people talk about their experience with colleagues. So group shared experiences then become an effect, uh, a powerful force here. And whether individuals view the climate as positive or negative will be influenced by these group shared experiences. Do they find the pay fair? Do they find that they are treated fairly by the organization? What do they think about the leadership in the organization? What about procedural justice? All of these things, and the way the group communicates about them, will help to build and shape that organizational climate. The immediate environment is another aspect of organizational climate. The supervisor, the tasks, the rewards, the punishments, and peers all affect the way people perceive the climate as either a pleasant or an unpleasant workplace the organizational environment, the size, the structure, the authority patterns of the organization, the roles, the job design, technology, the management philosophies, authority and power aspects. um, And all of these things can influence the organizational climate and people's perception of the climate, their attitudes and behaviors within that organization. Is, for example, the organization so big and so bureaucratic that it feels too strict, too constraining, too formal or too impersonal? Or maybe you're working in an environment where formality is desirable and maybe a certain amount of distance is also desirable and people are happy with that. So organizational climate is a very interesting and complex aspect of organizational behavior. Moving on, looking at organizational climate, we can continue by looking at the assume, the assumption that climate can be managed. Can it really? That's a good question. And how? <clears throat> Can it be managed more easily or changed more quickly than culture, for example? Uh, So some considerations here include the specific aspects of organizational climate, such as, is the organization rules-oriented? Is it formal or is it informal? Can you change that in an organization? Uh, What about the psychological distance of the leader? Do the leaders appear to be aloof? Or are they quite chummy or close with the people in the organization? Can you change that? Would that be desirable to change? What about creativity and the readiness to innovate? Being open to new ideas? Uh, can you change that in, from a group perception and the ways of doing things? I'm sure there are different kinds of interventions that an organization could attempt in order to modify people's perceptions of how open the organization is to new ideas. What about questioning authority? To what extent is that allowed or to what extent is that encouraged? How do people view the questioning of authority? Are they quite comfortable with that or are they very uncomfortable with that? How do the people in authority respond to critical evaluation? Sociability, another aspect of organizational climate. Is this something that we can manage? How friendly we are? How do people experience team spirit, how do they perceive the team spirit and the commitment and the friendliness of of others within the organization. An organization or an orientation to the wider community is another aspect of organizational climate. Is the organization sensitive to the needs of the community? Is it sensitive to uh, its environment outside the organization? Rewards orientation is another aspect of organizational climate that can influence group perceptions of the organization. In what ways do we encourage, foster efforts, or do we punish a lack of effort in an organization? How does that impact on the way those in the organization perceive the organizational climate? Well, Some scholars will say that organizations can foster a positive organizational climate by focusing on the following. For example, a shared sense of power based on partnership, collaboration, and empowerment. Also, uh, inclusivity based on respect and dignity. Connectedness based on valuing differences and communication excellence based on ideals, goals, and values. Organizations can also foster a positive organizational climate by focusing on an encompassing value system grounded in kindness, humility, and trust. Or they can also foster a positive organizational climate by focusing on concepts such as heightened participation, accountability, and fairness within the organization. So there are a number of aspects related to organizational climate that uh, management and organizations can attempt to focus on and attempt to adjust, attempt to shape through attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, through processes and procedures within the organization. So as we come to the close of Unit 3 in our Unit on People, Power, and Politics, we can summarize the points that we've looked at so far as follows. A knowledge of power and politics as well as organizational influence tactics and culture is particularly essential to success in organizations. In order to correct imbalances of power, organizations must seek to expand opportunity and mobility for those within the organization. They must seek to empower people in their roles and balance the numerical representation. Organizational politics can have both positive and negative consequences. And as we've seen, there are both positive and negative aspects of power, as well as positive and negative responses to the different kinds of power bases that a person might use or enact in an organization. There are a lot of things related to political tactics and political skills. So things like social astuteness or emotional intelligence can help people to understand and manage their own emotional responses within the organization, as well as understand and positively influence the emotions of others. And as we've seen, this management of behavior and the human behavior within organizations all contribute to the organizational climate, a climate that organizations can shape if they choose to. So that's the end of our Unit 3 in the module People in Business around People, Politics and Power.